All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Aaron Nuccio. We're at Evesham Wood in Salem. It's June 30th, 2020. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, first question for you is why wine? Uh, let's see, I fell into wine um, right after college. This was uh, mid-90s back on the East Coast. Um, Northern Virginia and uh, not quite sure what I wanted to do with my life, finished college in sociology um, and was really into food and cooking and thought about uh, culinary school and while pondering that uh, started working at a wine shop um, which turned out to be a great wine shop. Uh, started off uh, sort of a cheesemonger in the cheese department, um, quickly caught the bug got into wine, um, had some great mentors um, that really took me under their wing, taught me how to taste. Um, and so within a year or so, uh, I was part of the buying team there. And um, so I did, continued on with the retail side of the business for uh, about four or five years in Northern Virginia. Um, and I always joke, you know, I learned how, I learned what a lychee nut tasted like uh, by tasting with my mentors and uh, tasting Gewurztraminers uh, and then pointing that note out to me. And so I found out what a lychee nut tasted like before I'd ever eaten a lychee nut. Um, but so we did uh, about five years uh, in Northern Virginia um, and then uh, unplanned, uh, quickly fell in love with my now wife Jordan, who was on her way to veterinary school up in Massachusetts. Um, so I made the decision to head up there with her and um, decided to switch sides of the business um, and did the distribution side of the business up there in Massachusetts for about four years. Um, and she finished up veterinary school um, and our family had sort of moved around. We were sort of this new start period of our life. Uh, we'd gotten married uh, during vet school and sort of thought, um, okay, where, where would we like to live? Where would she like to, you know, eventually open a veterinary practice. Uh, I was thinking I really wanted to get back into the retail side of the business, um, which I really loved and was really interested in organic, um, and I guess at the time I would call it natural wine, um, which has sort of taken on a different meaning now. Um, but, uh, and so we were, I was drawn to the Pacific Northwest, my wife actually did her last externship was at a wildlife clinic up in um, outside of Seattle. So we spent our last um, few months of her, her vet school uh, living in uh, Seattle and still really focused then on retail side of the business, not at all thinking about uh, figuring out how to grow or make wine. Um, and she was not so keen on the uh, Northwest weather. Um, so we did have family down in LA. Um, we sort of got in the car, did a road trip from Seattle down to LA, stopping along the way, thinking, okay, where would we like to live? Where could she start a vet practice? Where could I start a retail? Uh, and we wound up compromising on Berkeley, California. So we moved there in, uh, this was probably 2005, 
Um, and sort of in that period, um, made the switch to trying to figure out how to make wine. My wife sort of, well, obviously knew I was very passionate about wine, but also when, when she was in vet school with uh, quite busy, I would spend a lot of time in the garden and wound up getting really into it, a big vegetable garden there. Super into that. She's looking at me doing that and wine and thinking, well, why don't you just, you know, make wine and grow it? Um, I said, yeah, it's great. It's totally different. I have no idea. Um, just because I can grow tomatoes and just because I can taste and assess wine doesn't mean I can make it. Um, but she finally uh, keep, kept pushing on me and I decided to figure out how to make it. And, and actually, uh, first I tried to uh, get into the Shemekeda online intro course. I was a little late in the semester and um, gosh, I think it was Al McDonald. He wouldn't let me join. He uh, said it was too late. I said, oh, no, I did not care about a grade. You know, I just, just want to listen in on it. He wouldn't let me, but um, so I missed that first semester. We're, we're settling in the Berkeley um, and I decided to start studying in Napa and Sonoma. Um, and so I really um, I decided if I was going to make wine in the U.S., um, I really wanted to make it in the Willamette Valley. Just the Pinot Noir the balance achieved in this region um, is really what I was drawn to. If you opened up the world, there are definitely uh, old, old world regions that I'd love to, but the idea of um, moving to another country, learning a new language, trying to start a business um, seemed quite overwhelming. And the, uh, the style of wine I was interested in was just um, really, I felt really hard to achieve in, in the California climate, you know, no matter where you were in California. I mean, nowadays I think, gosh, that would have been a real challenge and maybe that would have been interesting to try and, you know, achieve that balance um, in that climate, but uh, I don't know, either, either didn't seem possible or overwhelming at that point. Um, but um, I still couldn't convince my wife to deal with the rain up in the Northwest, so I sort of put my head down and uh, wound up going to school at Napa Valley College um, and focusing a little bit of vineyard there, but uh, mostly winemaking, um, which was a really great experience, sort of, I mean, they had a full, fully functioning, nice winery there, uh, small vineyard, um, great professor, and, and we kind of learned everything you could do to wine. Um, which was kind of the opposite of my philosophy, um, but wound up being a great experience. Um, you know, when we were sort of doing trials in class of uh, acid additions or, you know, all the different additions, you know, my hand was always up with the one uh, preferring the unaltered wine, um, usually the lone um, person in class, um, but by, you know, sort of having that opinion and having to defend it, um, really uh, was a great experience for me and really um, you know learning all the possible things you can do to wine um, well it wasn't my philosophy was was really uh, beneficial um, and really great people there um, and then simultaneously I started taking classes at uh, Santa Rosa Junior College uh, really focusing on the vineyard there 
And they, um, they still have, now I think they have a winery, but they had a large vineyard there in the Russian River Valley. Um, and about a 10-acre block of Pinot Noir um, that was organically farmed. Um, and so I got in with the sort of farm manager there um, and started working in the vineyard there um, with the crew. Uh, we do that a couple days a week. Um, and, uh, you know, different than growing vines up here in the valley, but uh, great experience and really, um, you know, getting dirty in the vineyard with the crew. Um, and so that was, um, I don't know, about a year into that, we were in, uh, so this is probably spring of 2007, and um, we'd, uh, still living in Berkeley, and my wife's like, you know, gosh, they just said we've gone through 45 straight days of rain, I didn't even notice it. And so I had a little light bulb go off, like, okay, well, well maybe, maybe it's time for the Northwest, give that a try. And so she was on board. Um, so we were renovating a house there. I was literally screwing in the last uh, doorknob. Uh, the animals were packed, the cars were packed, and we headed up to the Willamette Valley. Um, and so that was uh, spring, May of 2007. Um, prior to that, a couple months before, my mom had called me, said, oh, you know, this guy, I know this guy, friend of a friend, he's got some, something to do with Willamette Valley wine, you might want to get in touch with him, he's down in San Francisco, where, where I was in the Bay Area, and uh, so I thought, ah, you know, probably not going to lead anything, but I'll, you know, make contact. We went and had lunch. Um, met him at the slanted door a uh, couple of bottles of wine later uh, we really hit it off great guy turned out he was uh, ceo of a biotech company um, but decades earlier had been uh, the original one of the original investors of Yves Chambord. Um and he'd kind of had a falling out with russ and mary but just had wonderful things to say about them and of course amazing wines and said, oh, you should, you know, you should get in touch when you get up there. Um, so I did, when I, we got up here, I emailed Russ and, you know, my goal was to sort of uh, work for someone as an assistant uh, for a couple of years while looking for land, to sort of start a vineyard and estate. Uh, and so I emailed Rust asking him for a job. Um, he said, no, I don't have a job for you, but you can come out and check out uh, the vineyard and the winery. So I came out, um, it was probably May, June of 07, and met Russ, uh, first time I'd been to Evesham, and uh, wound up spending half the day with him, um, just really hit it off. Very similar philosophies, great guy. Um, and at the end of the day, I asked him again for a job. He, he said no, but, but you can come work harvest if you want. Um, so I thought, you know, I really wanted, really was looking for that assistant position, or at least to get in there, um, but thought, uh, you know, the opportunity to work with Russ is something I really should do. So I uh, did the first harvest here in 2007, and uh, while we were getting close to that, uh, Russ said, oh, you know, if you want to make some of your own wine, you can... Uh, make some in the warehouse. Um, so I jumped at that opportunity. Um, 
and actually another family or a family friend, Ken Cancilla, had come out. Uh, gosh, close to a decade before, he was in a running group with my mom back in Northern Virginia. But he had um, he was a tech guy and came out here. Intel bought an old Christmas tree farm. Um, he actually used to see. Pierre Ruvani, he used to write for The Advocate uh, back in MacArthur's in DC, um, and talked about coming out and growing grapes out here. So he finally, he did that. Uh, Jordan and I had actually, my wife Jordan and I had actually seen him in 05 on our trip down um, from Seattle to LA. We stopped and stayed with him for a little while and actually helped him plant some of his vines on his hillside. Um, again, no idea um, that I would be making wine at that point. Um, but so when Russ said you can make some wine, he was the first guy I went to to uh, find some grapes. Uh, his Cancilla Vineyard is uh, up just over the Yamel Carlton border um, by Cherry Grove. Um, and he didn't have anything available. He said, oh, you should uh, talk to Mumtazis. Um, so I talked to Mo and uh, got a few tons of biodynamic fruit from him. Um, I rented a U-Haul truck and uh, went and picked those up. Um, definitely overloaded the truck. Uh, I remember driving from his place in McMinnville back down here to to the winery, and you know, uh, was this was <laughs> this was 07. Uh, and so the rains were there. It started sprinkling on my drive. I go faster, just trying to beat this rain and uh, stress. This is my first wine um, ever making and on my own. And uh, the grapes got here safely, um, uh, but it was definitely a um, interesting and in retrospect great uh, first vintage here in the valley. Um, I remember we had Russ had tarps out over fruit outside the crush pad just and you know inches of rain collecting on them um so it was a challenge but um uh well certainly made amazing wines that year it took a while for uh some people particularly the press to catch on to that but um uh really special vintage um and so that was uh 07 harvest uh, great experience you know, Russ didn't have a job for me. It became super clear. Uh, just really small operation here. Um, and so I thought, you know, my, my, uh, my plan, I need to go get that assistant winemaking job. Um, and so went out and started uh, networking some more and, you know, through a friend of a friend, uh, got in touch with Jay Summers. Um, and I started helping him out at his winery. Um, he would come pick me up. I lived in Portland, right down the road from him actually. He'd come pick me up in the morning, drive to the winery and, you know, talk about the valley and, and Russ. Um, and, and Jay always had really uh, great things to say about Russ uh, and his wines. Um, and sort of through that experience, I kind of realized, you know, this opportunity to work with Russ was something I just couldn't pass up. Um, and so, I don't know, December, January, something like that of that year, I decided, um, Russ, you know, an invitation for me to come back, so I decided I was going to um, come back next year, work harvest, 
make some more wine of my own. Um, you know, this, the, the warehouse uh, where I made the wine, Hayden Fig, which later became Hayden Fig for eight, nine years, was a pole barn where Russ would store, uh, get a bottled wine. Uh, no drains, no water. We had a little heater and a little uh, wall air conditioning unit. Um, I used to have to put up plastic up to cover uh, the cased wines when I was fermenting in there so things wouldn't splash and get on the, um, the bottled wine. But it was bonded space uh, and it was enough uh, climate control. Um, and to me, it was a great opportunity. And so that first year, 07, I made a couple tons, 08, uh, got up to five, 600 cases. Um, and Russ and Mary and I just, we became friends. I mean, it was a little awkward at first. Um, Isham wasn't open to the public, and so I would be coming to their house uh, to come check on my wine every week. Um, uh, but they were super welcoming and um, very uh, hospitable. It was more awkward on my part. Um, and so I kept doing that for a few years and still looking for land. Russ, would, Russ and I would go out, um, drive, drive in the valley, uh, almost all Yalamity Hills, but sort of looking at spots where he thought um, would be great uh, potential vineyard sites. Um, and uh, a couple things got sort of close, but never found that, found the, um, the perfect site. And I kind of felt like I was, um, could be uh, uh, wearing out my welcome here. I was making, at that point, we were up to two, 3,000 cases um, in, yeah, this little warehouse with no drains. Um, and so I'd actually uh, uh, contacted Brad over at, uh, Brad Ford over at Illahi Vineyard. Um, he and I had become acquainted, and he was doing some uh, alternating proprieting there. And so I was planning to make um, the next vintage that would have been uh, 2010 wines at uh, Illahi, um, which I was, you know, uh, disappointed, saddened to leave Evesham, but really felt it was time, and I wasn't ready to to start my own, to build my own winery. Hadn't found the land yet, so, um, and that was, you know, gonna be a great place just to change. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, Russ and Mary, uh, kind of surprisingly, asked to meet with me, which was the first time ever, uh, very informal. Um, and so I kind of came and sat down, and I think, gosh, are they gonna ask me to take over the winemaking or something? This is weird. Um, and they asked me to buy Evesham Wood, uh, which was pretty shocking. Um, and I was certainly flattered, but um, uh, also pretty clear it was not what I wanted to do. Um, you know, and I had no idea Russ and Mary were, were looking to, to move on. Um, and what was important to them really was passing on Evesham, they weren't looking to, um, you know, cash out. They were looking to, you know, take this place into the next few decades. Um, 
And so I sort of, I, I took a little time to think about it, but nothing really changed with me. It was, you know, not my plan. I really wanted to do my own thing. I really wanted to build my own um, in sort of all aspects, vineyard, winery, brand, philosophy. Um, and so I kept, uh, you know, coming by every week or so, uh, making my wines, stayed good friends with them, uh, would sort of uh, nudge Rush, Russ to uh, push up his asking price and he could get more. Um, and they'd had, you know, they never made it public um, and they had a couple opportunities that came that thought uh, there might be people to come take it over, but this sort of kept falling through. Um, and so, after, I don't know, six, nine months or so, for some reason I just kind of came back to it and it kind of clicked to me that um, I was the person to, to take Evesham, you know, to the next generation uh, and really felt, um, felt a real responsibility um, that, you know, someone needed to do that. This place was um, so special and uh, it deserved um, to be sort of shepherded to the next phase and there was no one better to do that than me. Um, which, uh, you know, I love, loved Evesham, um, loved everything about it, but again, wasn't excited about that um, prospect of, of just sort of shepherding rather than creating. Um, but I'd had some um, good early success with Hayden Fig. And that started to click too, realizing, well, I could keep Hayden Fig going, and you know that's my own, and that's something that could be all me. While um, you know, Evesham, part of why I really didn't want to take it over was because in my mind it was sort of as good as it gets. There's nothing I could add to this place. There's nothing I could do to make it better. The best, you know, the best success I could have would be to not screw it up, um, which is a big challenge, but. Um, but not the sort of excitement I was looking for. But then I realized I had Hayden, had Hayden Fig, you know, and that might um, meet some of those needs of mine. Um, and um, so I decided, uh, <laughs> emailed Russ out of the blue one night um, and said, you know, I, I think I should do this. Uh, he was surprised, he was sort of taken off guard. Um, and said, okay, I was out of town, let's get together when I get back in town and talk, it's okay. Well, I just sent a uh, letter off to uh, Alan Meadows asking, of Burghown, asking if he knew of anyone that might be interested in taking over Evesham. Um, so I'll email him and tell him not to open that letter. Um, so he did that, we got together and, uh, you know, there was uh, not much to discuss. Um, and we got that ball rolling, um, and you know there was uh, you know legal sort of technical stuff that uh, wasn't fun, um, but we <laughs> we closed on uh, August of mid August of 2010, um, and the what was it the day before I was here. Um, Miguel uh, Fredo and Isaro, uh, three Torres brothers who, well, Miguel has uh, been here since 
uh, he was a kid. Uh, Russ taught him English. Um, uh, they've been here a long time. Um, but we were all sort of out front, and, and Russ would always store the new barrels for the year out on the open crush pad, and Miguel's sort of looking around, and he sees a little, little sawdust, and he tells me to come look at it. Look at it, we start picking up these barrels, and there's dust everywhere, sawdust everywhere. Turns out um, beetles had attacked the barrels. Um, and so he had all his new barrels out there and all the empties um, uh, were out there. And we start going through and everything. I mean, they loved the new barrels, but they were attacking uh, the used barrels. I just had an old um, big wood fermenter I bought from Bonnie Dune had just arrived. That's sitting out there. Um, and the next day, i getting ready to sign uh, a huge debt. Uh, <laughs> and, um, so that was not a fun day. Um, I'm panicking, talking, you know, calling, emailing the barrel broker. Uh, I wound up uh, emailing an entomologist at OSU. You know, do you, you know, all my colleagues, no one really know. The entomologist says, well, you know, the best thing to do is, you know, take all the affected wood, burn it um, away from the building and start over and like, okay, well, that's not a possibility. Um, so we, someone tipped me off that maybe grain alcohol would work. To, so we started sort of spraying all the barrels with grain alcohol and it looked like it was killing these little beetles. Um, they would sort of come out of the hole and then, and then die but then it turned out five minutes later, so they would spring back to life. So they passed out from the alcohol, so we figured out that didn't work. Um, so I wound up making a big concentrated mix of SO2 and citric, what we sort of used for sanitation, spraying the barrels, and then we would go through with a toothpick or a needle and poke out all the barrels. We called everyone in, we went through all the barrels, got them into the warehouse, uh, shoved, crammed, um, once we thought they were clean, and that was a whole day, sort of dusk coming, and we're finally done, everyone's really tired, and we see this sort of swarm of beetles coming down from the trees, and they were descending, and sure enough, uh, they were back, but we had everything put aside. Russ had never seen anything like this before. He'd been storing his barrels out there for 20 some odd years. Nothing like this had happened. Um, I'm still thinking, okay, am I gonna come in tomorrow morning and you know, all the barrels in the winery are gonna have holes in them and all of our wine has gone down the drain. Um, that didn't happen. Beetles never got into the winery. Um, we have, well, let's see around here, we still have a lot of plugged barrels, um, the holes from that. Uh, year of the Beatles. We now store all of the barrels inside, um, have a lot more space, so it's a lot easier. But um, That's really bad symbolism for buying a winery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was sort of the start of, uh, of a rough six months. Um, we had all, you know, we had harvest looming, had all sort of silly paperwork, TTB sort of stuff going on, while on my shoulders I had this immense pressure of, 
you know, while I'd been here for many years and done it all, now it was me. And, you know, the reason, the reason I sort of agreed to take it over was to preserve it. Um, and if I screwed it up, that was going to be a pretty clear failure. Um, so it was, um, there was a crazy harvest. <laughs> and then um, 10 was the year of the birds. Um, so right after the beetles, we had birds sort of descend. Um, again, nothing that Russ had ever seen before. Um, you know, his bird control before was a sort of half-broken shotgun. He'd go out and shoot every now and then to scare him. But we had just, you know, I mean, the sky would almost turn black with these thousands of starlings um, just descending on the vineyard. Um, and it wasn't just us, it was the whole valley uh, was affected that year. And, you know, we were pretty lucky in that small 13-acre vineyard, real nice gentle slope. I can sit up and stand up at the top and see the whole vineyard. And so we, I had propane cannons out and uh, shotguns. Um, and what I found worked the best actually was an air horn. Um, it kind of would spook them up like a shotgun. Uh, but then once I got them up in the air, I could keep moving them with pulses of the uh, air horn. So not just get them up off the vines, but move them out off the vineyard. Um, so it worked, but I would spend most of the day riding around like a crazy person <laughs> in the old Ford uh, with an air horn, uh, getting these uh, birds uh, to stop eating our grapes. Um, and we did, barely lost anything. Um, we were really fortunate. There was, um, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of vineyards um, lost a lot of fruit that year. And um, I know, like, larger vineyards were letting whole blocks go. Um, Ken Kinsella, where I was at that point uh, getting fruit from, actually in 2008, mm -hmm. uh, he cut out some fruit for me, and I still uh, make wine from his vineyard. Um, but he had a lot of loss that year. Um, but um, so it was a challenging uh, harvest, um, and, but we made it, and um, still one of my favorite vintages, you know, beautiful balance we got in those wines. Um, definitely was uh, hard fought, but, uh, but we won. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the next couple years were, um, were a bit like that. It was not, wasn't as intense as that, but I was definitely carrying a, um, a self-imposed pressure to, to not screw this place up. Um, and, you know, it was real easy. My, philosophy was so aligned with Russ and was making the style of wines I wanted to. I was growing uh, grapes the way I wanted to. Um, but it was, um, it just, it just, it was a lot of pressure I put on myself. Mm -hmm. um, and it also felt like, you know, this was, um, this is their place. This is Russ and Mary's. As it, uh, you know, they started, you know, in '86, planting the vines here, um, living in a trailer out in the middle of the vineyard for five years. Um, they put a, a ton of uh, work, uh, sweat, their hearts into it, um, and um, you know, to let that 
um, not succeed was sort of not an option. Um, but after a few, four years or so, um, sort of started to take on a different feel. And um, it started to feel more like our place rather than theirs. Um, and while there was really no, no difference in the wines uh, or the vineyard, it did start to look at our property here more as a, as a farm, uh, not just a vineyard and a winery. Mm -hmm. um, and that um, really made a lot of sense to me and my wife. Um, and also, in turn, started, started making it feel uh, like ours. Um, um, while, you know, Russ and Mary are still uh, such a part of this place, it's, um, I guess I, in a way, I don't feel like a visitor anymore, um, which I, I did for a long time. Um, so it's, it's really, uh, it's fallen into place nicely, and I still have Hayden Fig as my own sort of place to play. Um, you know, I, I joke that I, I steal grapes from Le Puisac, our state vineyard here at Eversham, every now and then for Hayden Fig to, um, well, this past year we did a skin contact Pinot Gris and Gewurz from the original plantings in 86. Um, made a really interesting rosé and that first time I started doing a, a Gris skin contact was in 11, 2011 and Russ came over over harvest, he's just stopping by to say hi and I'm sort of out front punching down some Pinot Gris and he just looks at me like I'm crazy and yeah, don't worry, Russ. This this is for Hayden Fig. It's not Evesham, you know. <laughs> um, but it still it still has that, you know. This is Evesham is um, my goal still is to you know keep it as it has been. And you know the few changes I have made is uh, bringing back some old bottlings. Like we have a, a great old block up at Temperance Hill from 1982, and um, Russ been working with that for for decades, decades before I came, and, um, but he hadn't bottled any of it separately um, in about 10 or 12 years. And so one of the things I wanted to do was bring back that, uh, that bottling, capture some of Temperance Hill separately. He was blending it into our Yolamity Hills Cuvee. And, uh, same thing with Mahonia Vineyard, the long history there, almost from the very beginning. Um, and used to do vineyard designates, but, um, had stopped for a long time and so brought that back we're doing bottlings there we've now taken over the whole vineyard and now um, we're farming it ourselves we're farming it organically um, and so really sort of feels like our sort of second estate vineyard and um, while it's a change it's also a change going back to the the origin of Evesham. That covered a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna, I want to back up for a second before before Oregon. Actually, yeah, yeah you mentioned um, kind of falling for wine pretty quickly when you were doing kind of culinary work and, and getting into retail. Tell me about your impressions of Oregon wine from the retail distribution side before you got here, and then maybe how those impressions were confirmed or or changed once you actually got to Oregon. Yeah, I mean. Um, I hadn't have an old world palette, um, and you know that was a big part of what I loved about retail was you know 
tasting 100 wines a week um, from all over the world, but mostly you know, a lot of old world. We had great old world importers there. Um, and um, Willamette Valley Pinots really had that um, similarity there, that liveliness, that um, acidity. Um, and that's, that stuck out to me. I can still, as I'm saying this, I can still see bottles up on, on the shelf there, which was, you know, mid-90s. Um, and, and so that, that didn't really, you know, that, that wasn't a wow moment, um, you know. Uh, I never in the wildest dreams would have thought I'd be making wine then. Um, but as it got closer and closer to that of actually I'm going to be making this stuff, not just, um, you know, tasting it and selling it, uh, it, it there, was, there was no other option in, in the U.S. for me. Um, that was pretty, pretty, pretty crystal clear. And one of the few times in my life uh, things have been so clear and it sort of felt like when we were my wife and I when we were in Berkeley it was man I kind of I kind of know my calling here this is really weird I never had anything remotely like that in my life kind of know what I'm supposed to do but um, my wife doesn't want to go live in that area um, and so while I was in California it was in a way, um, frustrating is not the right word, but I was sort of blindly doing it. And I, I knew the studies and the, the learning, and I knew, I just knew I wasn't going to have the passion to make wine there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I was going through this sort of training and learning without really knowing. I knew what I wanted that end to be, but that didn't seem like that was going to be possible. And so I actually started looking at, um, did start seriously looking at New Zealand, uh, a possibility of making Pinot Noir there. Nelson area I was really drawn to. Uh, and we'd actually booked a trip there. Uh, we were going to kind of half vacation, half explore wine regions when we were in Berkeley and think, try it on with this, you know. Would this be sunny enough for my wife? Um, and would I be able to make um, uh, sort of wines in the style um, that I was drawn to there? Um, and where happenstance, I was taking a chemistry class as part of my studies there. Um, and I had a final, and then we were going to leave the next day on this trip. Um, and our dog, my wife's. Uh, uh, dog she got in college actually when she lived in a dorm room as a puppy she would smuggle this dog into her dorm room dorm room um, in the middle of night sort of having these wild seizures and so this was you know this was our baby then um, and it was you know a sleepless night and off to the vet uh, I groggily walk into this chemistry exam um, didn't do well on that at all um, professor sort of looking at me like what is wrong with you um, but so we canceled the New Zealand trip we're very oh, we, we can't leave now this is um, you know this is too touch and go with our dog so mm -hmm. Vegas uh, and and then and then the rain came and uh, eyes opened that um, the Lama Valley might work so 
I think I answered half of that question. I can't remember what the other half. I'm was. curious. <laughs> when, when you got here, was it what you expected? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it was. Um, yeah, it was super special. I mean, it was. Um, I guess I had I kind of expected it, but to the degree that I was welcomed and taken under people's wings and helped um, other winemakers, growers. Um, it was surprising how how welcoming it was. Um, you know, in any other industry, these are, you know, your quote unquote competition. Um, uh, here they would do anything to help you out. Um, and it was, um, yeah, was super supportive. And um, yeah, a lot, I mean, certainly more than just Russ and Mary and Ken Kinsella. I mean, um, John Groshow early on. I mean, there are a lot of people, uh, Jay Summers, that really just, um, yeah, were supportive and helpful any way they could be. Um, and maybe the, your next question would be, has it changed? <laughs> uh, and, you know, yeah, I guess it has changed. Everything, everything does. Um, but it's, to me, it's sort of, there's a bit more of a divide where I didn't, I didn't notice that at least, and I don't think it really was there um, when I first got here in 07. Um, but this, it's definitely, if it was there, it's stronger now, and that there's still that super tight, welcoming community here. Um, and it's just as big, if not bigger, than it was then. Um, but there's definitely another side to the valley now. Um, you know, corporate was something you know, <laughs> that 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 word didn't exist um, in the Willamette Valley when I came here, and you know that's certainly part of our culture here now. Um, and so I think you know that's that's not my style, um, but I think there's uh, plenty of the sort of um, the old guard and. and the new guys looking to the old guard um, that really, I, I, you know, that I would put myself in, that really um, value that part of the valley and um, work hard to, to, to keep it that way, at least a part of it. So you mentioned meeting Russ and kind of finding a kindred spirit in terms of wine philosophy. So tell me, tell me about how you would describe your winemaking philosophy and, and how maybe Russ, it, it changed after meeting Russ. Yeah, so I, I mentioned, you know, in, in, in Napa, I sort of learned everything you could possibly do to a wine. Um, and when I came here that first harvest, um, which, you know, with Napa, that wasn't, I didn't subscribe to that. I, you know, definitely was happy to go up against that. But then when I came here with Russ, it was to a whole other level. You know, that first vintage in 2007, I had uh, just a couple of fermenters of my own wine. This is my first solo wine. I was quite nervous, did not want to screw this up. Uh, and so I'm, you know, tending to my fermenters every morning and every evening. I'm, 
you know, checking the temperature, bricks levels, watching the fermentation curve. Then Russ would sort of look at me funny when I was doing this, and they would comment, but um, that was the first and last time I ever did that. You know, I really um, learned from Russ. I guess the biggest thing I learned from Russ is to not to not do anything. You know, and while that seems simple, it's. Um, it's, it's really hard to fight that instinct, um, especially when you're nervous about something or unsure. And I would often, you know, come over with a sample from the warehouse, Russ, taste this, what do you think? And he's like, oh, it's fine, you know, don't worry about it. Um, and almost all the time, wines, they work themselves out. Um, not every time, but almost all the time. And they, they make, I think, a much better wine than there ever could be. Um, and so it, it took a long time for me to fight that instinct of, um, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't do it, but I'd be really angsted inside about it um, and, and distressed. Um, and now it, it's uh, not at all. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's sort of this flow. I mean, even, you know, in our vineyard, we, you know, we're not taking petiole samples and pressure bombs, and we're walking the vines, looking at the leaves, looking, you know, look, we're just looking. Um, and in the cellar, yeah, we're we're looking, we're tasting, we're smelling, um, and you know, that's 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 our monitoring, and that is not you know it wasn't something Russ taught me. It was something I learned from observing him, mm -hmm. um, and you know part of it for him it was you know there was no angst there on his part, um, and you know he would even he would even go to bottle without checking SO two levels. Um, I still can't do that. I'm not easy with that. I, I want to know what's in there before uh, we put the cork in, but, um, but that's essentially the only time we ever go to a lab. Um, it's really using our senses and that's, you know, monitoring our fermenters is, is, is smelling, looking, touching. Um, and that's, um, that's how we farm the vineyards too. You know, we've, Russ, uh, Super early on into uh, farming organically, he had Le Puisac, uh certified organic in 2002. Um, uh, very much ahead of his time there, very much ahead of his time dry farming. Uh, he and John Paul started the DRC um, back who knows when, you know, one of those uh, <laughs> heavily wine nights. Um, but looking, you know, looking to the old world and, you know, Russ very much into organics, John Paul, biodynamics. Um, but looking at these two certifications or, or ways of farming in the new world, and neither of them addressed irrigation. Um, whereas you look to the old world where we, you know, all of us get our inspiration uh, and enjoyment from. And, and um, you know, it's essentially it's illegal to irrigate if you want to put the AOC, the AOC on your label. Um, so, you know, you look at that now and it's like, of course. Um, but then that was, you know, that was so progressive. Um, Non-filtering Pinot Noir, I mean, Russ, 
um, I remember him telling me um, it was Barney Watson. You know, he, he was checking with him early 90s probably. You know, I'm thinking about not filtering. What do you think? Oh, you're crazy. That wine's going to be so unstable. Um, I mean, now we are quite common uh, unfiltered wines and. Um, you know, we still, we still rack out of the racking bone, traditional method. Um, and, uh, you know, for Russ, it was just sort of obvious. Um, uh, I think for me, it's a little more calculated um, and at a, more of a conscious effort to, to slow down, to move back, to not... Um, uh, rely or embrace technology just because it's available. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit about um, that sort of the, the, the confidence level, the angst, the angst level at, at letting things be. Yeah. Was there was there a moment for you or a vintage for you that that confidence kind of kicked in where you felt like what you were doing to the grapes in the vineyard and to the wine? It, that it was good enough that you could just let it be? Like, the, at what point do you feel like, I'm doing this right, I gotta trust the process? No, it was definitely just a gradual. Um, I was, I guess, I guess at least we get to 09 vintage, those wines, from the beginning, I was, I was happy, you know, with what I'd made. Um, so by the time I had taken over at Evesham, there wasn't like, um, I guess I didn't feel like I was doing anything wrong or needed to do anything differently. Um, but the potential was the, the, the scary part. Um, and, you know, even while I sort of knew logically go with the flow, you know, let, let, you know, let those vines, let that wine lead you um, just to, to just to let it go was hard. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, 2010, you know, those wines I was really happy with early on. Um, didn't, didn't make 2011s any less stressful. Um, just, yeah, just because it worked once didn't mean I couldn't still screw it up. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it was, and I think probably that was um, part of where Russ's philosophy or ease came from, of just time and history and experience. Um, and, you know, you see it happen enough times, okay, you're probably not gonna screw it up. Um, so it, it's, it just sort of eased in. It definitely wasn't a light bulb moment for me. Talk a little bit about, about Hayden Fig and about starting it, obviously starting it really, really quickly uh, in, your, in your wine journey here. Uh, as it's evolved as a brand, what is it that you look to it for now? You mentioned kind of experimentation and doing things that made Russ shake his head at you, but I'm curious, as it's evolved, what do you do differently with Hayden Fig? Well, um, you know, that was, um, <laughs> yeah, well, taking over Evesham, keeping Hayden Fig going, 
these were not, um, you know, part of a grand marketing uh, scheme. And uh, if we did, did have a PR company, they would uh, definitely tell us to do things completely differently. Um, it was, you know, so making, when I started making Hayden Fig and when I still make it now, you know, those wines, there's not a big difference between um, Evesham, you know, because my philosophy with Russ is so similar. And um, so it wasn't like, oh, this is your second label, this is your experimentation, this is, that's nah, different. Um, and so, you know, there's little things I do in the cellar, you know, I play, definitely play around a lot more with different vineyards with Hayden Fig. Um, you know, Eversham to me is very much about our estate, the Puisac and the Olamity Hills. Um, and while that's, you know, definitely my favorite growing region and my favorite vineyard, um, I, I, I do, I do like to, I do um, play around with the wrong word, I do like to experience different things. Um, and even early on with Hayden Fig, you know, I, when I was looking for land, I sort of quickly realized, gosh, I don't want to, you know, set myself up if I have too large of a piece of land that I'm going to, um, you know, be sort of stuck just working with this fruit. Mm -hmm. I really love um, to work with these different sites. And, you know, we work with at least a dozen, dozen different vineyards every year. And, you know, you can have one vineyard right next to the other that express themselves completely differently. Um, we have, you know, Le Puisac here, which is uh, Jory and Nakaya soil. It's uh, own rooted Pomard from 86. Um, uh, our block up at Temperance Hill, five miles away, is own rooted Pomard from 82 on Jory and Nakaya soil. Uh, treat them exactly the same, and the wines are completely different wines. Um, and you know that's that's part of what drew me to the valley. That's part of what drew me to Pinot Noir. Um, and so I guess you know Hayden Fig does um, open that up a bit more. Um, but um, and who knows? But now we're not doing anything crazy. Definitely have a much more, um, a big focus on Chardonnay for Hayden Fig. We have for uh, a number of years. Not to say that um, Russ wasn't with Evesham, but actually in the mid-2000s, Russ uh, grafted over a couple few acres of Chardonnay here at Le Puisac to Pinot um, because, uh, you know, the Pinot was flying and he actually had to work to sell that Chardonnay. Um, he still left a quarter of acre. We have a quarter acre right up the top of the vineyard um, where we get a barrel or two a year out of, um, which again, PR company uh, accountants would, you know, <laughs> hate, hate that. Um, but, you know, we love to make that one barrel of the Puisac Chardonnay. Um, uh, and so, I, you know, I started, Hayden Fig started, obviously, I mean, it's about the wine. Um, but in 08, uh, I had wine bottled. Uh, and my wife and I, we had our first son. Um, and we had no name for the winery and we had no name for baby Nuccio. Um, and so we, it was actually the same week, sleep deprived of having a newborn, we named Hayden Hayden and uh, Hayden Fig, Hayden Fig. Um, then uh, a few years later had our daughter Juliet, which is now our sort of 
reserve level under the Hayden Fig wines to try and even out the, the sibling rivalry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you talked earlier about uh, obviously feeling a pretty immense pressure, putting pressure on yourself, especially taking over Evesham Wood. I'm curious, uh, as, you're, as you are, you're taking over this brand from a person you really respect, and, and the brand is very respected also, um, as that pressure kind of decreases, how do you how do you evolve that? How do you take the brand Evesham Wood and make it yours while, while still keeping it in kind of the spirit that it's always been? Um, I mean, I guess there's no change. It's um, it's just an internal feeling change. I mean, it's this. This place is the same. Um, it's a little different. <laughs> We've got horses and chickens and ducks, and we expanded our caves, but it's it's the same. It's just um, it's just sort of the I guess the perspective I look through um, that has changed, and um, you know it does. I you know, as I said earlier, I don't I don't feel like a visitor anymore, um, but that's not that's not because. Evesham or Le Puisac has changed because I have my perspective of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the goals are still exactly the same. Don't screw it up. Um, I, I have more confidence now that I'm not going to screw it up, that's not going to get screwed up, um, which definitely, um, well, my wife would say probably makes me a, a friendlier person. <laughs> um, but there's, you know, harvests are are a lot less stressful now um, and it's we're not doing anything different um, I've got amazing crew of the Torres family um, who mentioned earlier Miguel, Alfredo, and Isaro uh, their mom and dad still help out every now and then uh, Miguel's daughter Brenda now helps out so we get three generations um, and it's basically them, myself, and now we're, now we're open to the public for a few years we've been, so we have Chris uh, over running the tasting room, but it's, you know, it's just us. Um, and it's all the same, it's just um, more time together and more time here, feeling more, more at home. Uh, talk about selling selling wine. Usually, the, the biggest complaint people have about being in the wine business is actually having to, to sell the product when they're done with it. You have a different you have a background in, in retail and in distribution. Obviously, you, you took over a brand that's highly respected. Tell me about selling Evesham Wood wine, selling Hayden Fig wine, and and how it's maybe changed since you, since you started. Yeah, I. Um yeah, I, I loved selling wine. <laughs> um, that, you know, I, well, in retail, I loved that exposure to wines from all over the world and tasting all of them, um, which is still probably what I look back to the most when making wine is those early years of developing a palate from wines all over the world. Um, but I also loved uh, equally selling them and you know opening people up to new wines and um, and so yeah I guess it's a bit of a different perspective than many coming from that and but to then go sell or you know much more my way of looking at it is share 
um, these wines with uh, people, and now it's wines that I actually made. Um, it's great. Um, you know, I think maybe my wife is my worst critic, but if not, it's me. Um, and so, you know, that pressure, <laughs> that, that pressure is, uh, comes way before, you know, when I'm making these wines. And so when they're in the bottle, I'm pretty happy with them, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and so it's more, it's definitely much more um, uh, an enjoyment of, of sharing them with other people. And you know, the wines we make um, are not for everyone. And um, you know, this style of, of uh, restraint um, is not what everyone's looking for. And that's totally cool. Um, uh, you know, I, I say that, you know, Temperance Hill, that, uh, the wine we make from there, it's a, I call it the love it or hate it wine. It's, you know, it, it's not for everyone. Um, and I've got, you know, you know distributors, uh, other winemakers, the similar palettes to mine. Half of them, it's their favorite vineyard in the valley. Half of them can't stand it. Um, and I, I think that's great. The one thing I argue about with anyone is if they don't say agree it's a distinct site. You can dislike it, but man, that site produces a really distinct wine. Um, and that's, that's, I mean, that's part of, that's what I loved about it when I first got into the business is this, it's, I mean, it's endless. There's, there's so many, um, you know, so many differences. I mean, yeah, now I deal mostly with one grape or a few grapes, a handful of grapes, um, but a dozen vineyards, and then a vintage. I mean, every vintage here is, is completely different. And um, I very much want the wines to reflect that. And, you know, <laughs> from, from a sort of typical selling point that could be uh, a problem, you know, even Shimwoods, even our, you know, introductory Willamette Valley Pinot blend of many different vineyards, <coughs> excuse me, is uh, completely different every year. And so, you know, you go pick up uh, 2017 uh, Evesham Willamette Valley Pinot, and then you try the 18, those are completely different wines. Um, and it's because of the growing season. And I really try to embrace that. When I was, when I was in California, I uh, helped out at a vineyard in Napa up on Howell Mountain. Um, it was another really interesting experience of you know, winemaker there, great guy. Um, and I said a joke, you know, his, he would make, his, uh, his day job was making Howell Mountain Cabernet, um, sort of, you know, 98 point Robert Parker wines. Um, and then his side job was making uh, Pinot Noirs, um, sort of 95 point Robert Parker wines. Um, and, um, you know, super successful, really good guy. And he would give me a hard time. He's like, oh, Aaron, you're going up to the Willamette Valley. You know, I you know, think I can grow good wine up there, but, but every vintage is so different. And, and, you know, yeah. And that was seen really as a negative to him. Um, and to me, it's such a positive. It's such, it's, it's part of what keeps it fun. It's part of what, um, 
it's part of what it is. I mean, this is so much of this is out of our control, and to embrace that um, is definitely a big part of it. And I think that I mean, just it's part of the same thing with what I've learned from Russ is you're not in control of this stuff, and you know, there's things you can do, but only so much. And um, but most of the time, it works. And if not, there's the woods in the back. <laughs> <laughs> so we're obviously, we're talking in, in the end of June of 2020 here, uh, or dealing with the, the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's affected, of course, the wine industry as well as everything else. So tell me how it's changed things for you, uh, if at all, in the last few months, and, and sort of if it's what your outlook is, is going forward at this point. Um, yeah, I have no idea on the latter. Um, yeah, it hasn't uh, it hasn't changed things much for us. At least looking at it now, maybe if I look back at this in ten years, I'll be able to pinpoint. Um, but you know, the the sort of business side of things is uh, is different, but the same. You know, um, I think. Uh, you know, certainly with restaurant closure, there's been a huge shakeup there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a shame what, what that industry is dealing with it and how they're gonna come out of that um, is scary. Um, but for me, and this sort of back a step, it, it, we don't see a big difference there. Um, you know, our, we, we have a tasting room here now and the hospitality signs of things have changed, but you know, at least for us, we were not, um, we always, <laughs> I always hoped we were not, and I don't think we were, just sort of, you know, a stop on the road uh, of many. Um, we were, you know, for the most part, people that came to see us, uh, came to see us for a reason. And um, so, you know, we, we closed down for, I don't know, a month or two and opened back up, but mostly by appointment. Um, but that's a, lo a lot of what we were doing before anyways. Um, um, you know, yeah. And so long-term, or I don't know, what, what I, I have no idea what things are gonna look like in a year. I wouldn't be surprised if things are turned upside down, and I also wouldn't be surprised if we're back to some sort of normal. Um, and, you know, I guess it kind of ties into all of it, is it's out of our control, um, and do the best we can, um, yeah, to go, go along. So as you look ahead for yourself then, pandemic notwithstanding, what are you kind of looking for in the next decade at Evesham at Hayden Fig, for you, kind of for yourself personally? Um, you know, I used to joke, and my wife would probably have a more, you know, negative way of putting it, but I, I, <laughs> I do things slowly. I make change slowly, baby steps. And, you know, that's probably part of a continuum of how this is all gone. And so, um, you know, well, I, you know, it's been 10 years since I took over Evesham, and 
I guess if I look back at how it was then and how it is now, you could see some change, but it's more of just a continuation. You know, what would it have looked like if, um, you know, if Russ had stayed here? Um, probably not much different. Um, and that was the goal. That's what I wanted to do, you know, and that was, you know, that was my fear. And I think probably some of Russ and Mary's is that, you know, letting go of it, there was potential for, you know, them to walk in here and two years later not recognize it. And that was, you know, it's really important to me that that didn't happen. Um, and it wasn't hard for me to do that because I love this place and I wanted to keep it. Um, but, you know, in that, in that move of it feeling um, more ours and, and definitely, you know, we're going, definitely going more towards a farm than a vineyard and a winery. Um, I've had a couple failed attempts at chickens in the rows, and so I'd love to figure that out uh, in the next 10 years. And um, who knows, the caves might go a little farther into the woods. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, want, I don't want to see it much different. You talked earlier about one of the changes you've seen in the, in the industry in terms of the, the, the added corporate side of, of Oregon wine. What other changes have you seen since you became a part of the industry? What does it look like now versus what it looked like when you started? Um, I'd say there's, I mean, there's not much apart from that. There's, you know, we've seen our, our Deep Roots Coalition. Um, that has grown immensely. We were, you know, well over 30 wineries now. Um, and that was, you know, in 2010, that was, you know, <laughs> loosey-goosey to say the least. Um, and so, you know, getting more structure in this unstructured organization, um, I remember John Paul and Russ would say, you know, the way they got David Lett to join was to promise them there would never be a meeting uh, in the organization's history. And, you know, we have meetings now. Um, and it's, it's definitely um, attracted people and grown. And there's a, there's a real interest in that, um, that that's grown. And so, yeah, there's a change there and kind of in tandem with um, you know, there weren't, there weren't private jets flying in and out of here when I came here. Um, and this, you know, not a lot, but this, you know, there are those changes. And I think that's, that's sort of just building up both sides, not, um, not sweeping across the valley into a big change. You know, there's more and more vineyards being planted, more and more wineries, but, you know, even in the Yolamity Hills sub-AVA here, there's just, you know, there's still tons of wonderful sites that haven't been planted yet. Um, so the, I mean, the room for growth is, you know, it's immense. And, you know, we're, um, you know, we're still just scratching this, you know, come back in a hundred years. And yeah, I think, you know, you'd see some change then. Um, but I don't know if we could still be fully planted then yet, you know. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of room. Um, and 
and there's a lot of people, there's enough, I think, that are um, really admire uh, where it started and want to hold on to that. Um, you know, not at any costs, but, um, you know, you, you can change and still hold on to those roots, not as memories, but as, um, you know, every day. So as you look ahead then for Oregon Wine, do you, what do you see it looking like 10 years from now? Will, will, will it have grown? Will it have changed in other ways? What are your, what do you kind of see on the horizon and maybe what do you fear on the horizon? I mean, growth, there's, you mean, that, that would shock me. I guess that would be the surprise if we didn't see um, a lot more wineries and a lot more vineyards and a lot more attention. Um, and my, my guess would be that, you know, we would see similar growth the way it's going now. Yeah, you know, you know we'll get some bigger wineries, we'll get some corporate impact, but we're going to have strong growth of, you know, small wineries that are, you know, still very hands-on. And, um, you know, there's a lot of us that are sort of, in a way, sort of going backwards. And, you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean um, it's the best thing to do. Um, you know, as far as... I don't know, predictions. I, I mean, I would still think Pinot Noir would, would still definitely be the uh, highest planted varietal. Um, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, Someone, you talked about the mentors you had getting into the industry and all the people who took you under their wing and, and offered you advice. I'm sure you have had been on the other end of that now and had people come to you for advice. So I'm curious. Someone comes to you and wants to be in the Oregon wine industry. What are your words of wisdom? Hmm. Um, well, I remember this makes it makes me think of uh, what Russ was said to me early on. He was um, maybe a, uh, I guess he was apprehensive about encouraging me to get into. Um, the Willamette Valley wine industry. Um, he certainly didn't discourage me, but you know, he was sort of blown away by the number of wineries there were then uh, compared to when he started. And he thought, you know, is are, are there enough outlets for all this wine? Mm -hmm. um, and ten years later, or thirteen years later. Uh, I think the answer is clearly yes. Um, you know, so while our production has grown here, our, you know, the, the interest in the outlets has grown just as quickly. Um, and, you know, we used to, when I took over Evesham in, in 10, we used to stand out a bit more um, as, so the style of wine we would make, the restraint, um, and our sort of our clientele was was pretty small but pretty devoted, mm -hmm. um, and I've definitely seen that change as you know the 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 number of people 
embracing this style of wine has definitely grown, uh, grown both in number and percentage of sort of the market. Um, but has also seen the uh, number of wineries producing this style of wine grown. You know, when I came here in 07, the joke in the valley was when, when rust starts picking, it means harvest is going to start in two weeks. Everyone would call him an early picker. Um, and uh, he was you know, often, you know, the first to pick. And that's not the case anymore. And when I took over in 10, um, that was the case. You know, shared vineyards, I was always the first to start picking. Um, that's not the case anymore. There's um, a lot of sites I share where, um, you know, there's a cluster of us that will start picking at the same time. I mean, I call it picking on time, not picking early. Um, you know, looking to, to, to capture that uh, acid and, and freshness. And there's still, there still are some vineyards that, where I'll be the first to start picking by, by week sometimes. Um, so there's definitely, you know, it's not like we've fully swung over, but, um, but that's grown, which, you know, I guess, in one way, you could say we, we have more quote-unquote competition now, um, but it's the valley, so it doesn't feel that way at all. It's, it's, there's more wines I love to drink coming from the valley, um, and, which is it's just a great thing. And, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, think, I don't think we're going to swing all the way over by any means. Um, I think, you know, I don't really want to get into it, but I think, you know, the natural wine movement has... Is plays into that too, and the parkerization, and the change in that, and the, you know, the style of wines um, ebbs and flows. Um, uh, but I, and I think that'll stay. <laughs> that that's gonna, that's that's the one thing we know that's not going to change is that things are going to change. All right, last question for you. We got a little philosophical for you to finish this up. <laughs> okay. What is wine's role in society? Oof. Uh, I think the way I would answer that is the way I look at what I'm doing. You know, what, what I'm trying to do is, it's, you know, is capture where this was grown and when this was grown. And that, that's what's most important to me. Um, and I think, um, staying true to that is what I want to do. Um, and that, I, I definitely don't think you could put that into uh, all of society. Um, and, so I, I don't think there is one answer to that. I don't think there is one role or one answer to what what wine, wine's role in society is. Um, for me, it's to you know it's important to farm uh, a piece of land responsibly, um, and it's important to um, to capture that vintage and that site and and share it. Um, you know. One of my favorite wines to make is the Evesham Wood Willamette Valley Pinot. You know, this is our largest production wine by far and our least expensive. Um, and it's a wine that reflects 
the vintage it was grown in and where, uh, where it was grown. And it's a wine that most can afford uh, to experience. It's a wine that you can watch evolve over a decade uh, and experience that. And it's a wine that hopefully, you know, doesn't sit in somebody's cellar as a trophy. It's a wine that gets, um, people get to experience. And that's, you know, that's, that's why I want to make wine, is for people to experience it. And so, you know, for me, there's definitely an internal fight there of, uh, you know, you gotta, we've got to be sustainable. Um, we've got to be able to pay the bills and pay our employees, uh, and you know, and comfortably. But um, but we also, I also don't want this to be exclusive. And certainly, um, you know, don't want to make a, a bottle of wine that you know sits and gets pet for the next two decades rather than enjoyed. Um, yeah. All right, that's all the questions I have for you. Okay. Anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Is there anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Um, not that I can think of. It's great. Thank you so much for this. Yeah. It's been great stories for the for your perspectives. And uh, go ahead and let you off the hook. Cool. Thanks.